We are rounding the final corner on the sermon series that we've been calling God Can't. And we've been dealing, we've been kind of messing around with some of our previously held notions about God, especially the notion about God that God is omnipotent, that God can absolutely do whatever God wants to do. We're messing around with it because it's not quite logical in our world. Because if you can do absolutely everything you want to do, then you would do it. And so some people have said, well, that must be true about God. So everything that is happening is happening because God wants it to happen. But that doesn't quite square with our experiences. It doesn't square when we think about the suffering in this world. It doesn't square when we think about the God that's proclaimed in Scripture, a God who is love. It doesn't square with the God proclaimed in Scripture, a God who gets angry about the way things are going, a God who is surprised, a God who gets upset. And so we've been scratching away at that notion that God is absolutely omnipotent and absolutely gets everything that God wants. And we've been saying, you know, if we take that away for just a moment, maybe that'll help us understand what we should do when we're faced with suffering, when we're faced with evil in this world. So we've been peeling that away and taking a deeper look at the God of Scripture, the God especially revealed in Jesus, and how this might shape our notion about how God works in the world. So let me just recap the last couple of weeks because I think every idea is pretty important to hold together. So in the first week we said, um, love does not control. Love does not control. This is what love is about. It doesn't control. If you or your partner, um, if you say to your partner, I love you, and now do absolutely everything I tell you to do. That's not love, okay? <laughs> and um, if your partner is saying that to you, come talk to me. We'll, talk, we'll work it out, okay? That's not what love does. Love doesn't control. It doesn't say you must do absolutely everything I do I want you to do. But I think sometimes we think about God that way. Like God is this one that's demanding absolute obedience and control the whole time. That's not love. What the scriptures do reveal is that God is love. There are some things that love can't do. And so that means there are some things that, that God can't do. We especially get this from the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, the love chapter. Love is patient, love is kind. But it goes on to say that love does not force its own way. Love does not insist on its own way in some other translations. God does not force God's way on you or on creation. Because if God did that, then God wouldn't be love anymore. So that's the first thing that we have to kind of get our mind wrapped around. Then the next week we look at Jesus a little bit more deeply and who is Jesus and what is Jesus revealing about God. We see that Jesus goes into the world and he's not just a solution machine. He's not just walking around zapping people. You're healed, you're healed, you're healed, everybody's healed. Every time he comes across a person, he sees them as a true human being. He gets down in the dirt with people who are sick. He gets down in the dirt with people who need help. Yes, he heals them, but he also sits with them, cries with them, feels their pain with them. This is what Jesus 
reveals about God, that God is fundamentally somebody who is with us in our suffering. And when we suffer, when we go through hard times, that's what we need most, that's what we cry out for the most, is somebody that truly knows what we're going through. Jesus reveals that that is exactly who God is. Fundamentally, God is somebody who is fully empathetic to us. And when we take a step back, we kind of realize, you know what? That God is more powerful than any other kind of God that we can make up or imagine. A God who's truly with us in all things. That's what Jesus reveals about God. Then week three, it's not that God only sits with us in our sadness or only sits with us in our suffering, but God gets to work. And how does God work? He works through influence. God works through love by wooing people to do the right thing. And when all of us, when all of creation in a given circumstance responds to God perfectly, a miracle can happen. When everyone lines up and does exactly what they're supposed to do in exactly the right moment, God opens up new possibilities and miraculous things happen. And so if you've experienced that miracle, if you've experienced something miraculous happen, I say give thanks to God. Give thanks to God. But if a miracle happened, if things did not go your way, it's not because God wasn't doing God's best. It's not because God wasn't pushing and working hard. It's not because God wanted you to suffer. It's because creatures, things, circumstances did not respond to God in the right way and the miracle was missed. And so I say, in times of miracle, give thanks to God. In times when miracles don't happen, blame creation. Blame creation. And commit to being open to God. And then the final thing that we dealt dealt with last week is when those miracles don't happen, when suffering happens, when evil happens, God doesn't give up. God doesn't say, well, you're a lost cause. This this situation is a lost cause. Instead, when when evil happens, when bad circumstances happen, God says, I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to squeeze whatever good I can out of this terrible situation. God continues to work even when we have uh, gone by the wayside, even when we've gone off track. God continues to work to bring about good. God never, ever stops. And then we get to today, and today is kind of our final thought, the idea that God absolutely never works alone. I think in our society, in our culture, we value and we praise people that get stuff done on their own, right? We praise people who've pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. We idealize the idea that you can do it on your own. You can do it your way. You did it yourself. As many of you know, uh, probably, uh, there's a very famous rapper named Drake who has a song all about this. I know, it's your favorite song. It goes like this. Started from the bottom, now we're here. And if you haven't heard the song, I just recited about 90% of the lyrics of that song. (laughs) Just over and over again, he talks about started at the bottom, now we're here. And what it is, is just a praise song to himself. That I worked myself from absolutely nothing and got myself to fame, got myself 
to this spot. I did it. I did it. As I was thinking about Drake and this song, I was reminded also about the story of Benjamin Franklin. I know, these two things go hand in hand, I know. Benjamin Franklin, in his autobiography, talks about himself in the same way that Drake talks about himself. Benjamin Franklin tells the story of how he became the founding father of the United States, that he went to Philadelphia with nothing but one farthing in his pocket, or whatever a farthing is. With that farthing, he bought three loaves of bread, and he gave two loaves of bread According, this is him writing his story. He gave two loaves of bread to people who were hungry. And so with nothing more than one loaf of bread, he started a printing press empire and became the father of our nation. So he tells the story. Now Drake and Benjamin Franklin are both wrong. We idealize and praise this idea of somebody doing things by themselves, but the truth is, Neither of these guys did anything solely on their own. Drake, Drake uh, the rapper, he was a child actor on a Canadian television station, a TV show I think called Degrassi. And uh, so he didn't exactly like start from the bottom and, and now he's here. He started from upper, upper middle class and now he's here, right? So he didn't start from nothing. He was surrounded with privilege and help and fame from a child, from, a, from a, a, a young age, from childhood. He didn't do it on his own. Benjamin Franklin didn't do it on his own either. He came from a wealthy family that started a printing press, but when he also came to Philadelphia, he also had another thing in his pocket. It was a letter from the governor of Virginia opening doors for him to do different things. So he didn't do it on his own, but for some reason, we praise this idea that you can do it on your own, that you don't need anybody else. In reality, we depend on each other. We need one another. Your success, at your success, where you got, is because other people have helped you along the way. Other people have helped you along the way. I'll challenge you to think about those ways that other people have helped you as well. But, because we praise this individualism, I think it's a lot of times we think about God that way. God must also be this thing, this entity that does things on his own. God doesn't need anyone, doesn't need any help. God can do whatever God wants on his own. But when we look at scripture, that's never been our God. Even from the very beginning of the work, uh, God creates the heavens and the earth. Towards the end of the first chapter, God says something that's a little strange. God says, let us make them in our own image. The language is really strange. Who is God talking about? Who is God talking to? There's been no shortage of spilled ink on these small verses what does it mean, let us make them in our own image? Why is God talking about himself in the plural? Who is God talking to? Ancient scholars and contemporary scholars disagree on some things, but what they don't disagree on is that God is working with others. That God is always in relationship with others. There's never been a time when God was not alone. As Christians, we kind of fill in that gap a little bit. As Christians, we say God 
in and of himself is plural. God is never alone. God has Jesus. God has the Holy Spirit. When we take a look at the life of Jesus, Jesus reveals that God has never been alone. In uh, John chapter 1, it says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and everything that came into being came through the Word. God did not create alone. God never works alone. Uh, John chapter 15, uh, when the disciples are saying to Jesus, Jesus, show us the Father, and Jesus says, look, if you've seen me, then you've seen the Father, because I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. We've never been apart from each other. God never works alone. And the rest of the New Testament does the same. Uh, just a couple of examples, though. Uh, I just pulled out one other from First Colossians, or not First Colossians, there's only one. Um, Colossians chapter 1, where it says of Jesus, he existed before all things, and all things are held together in him. God has never been alone, and God does nothing alone. This is who our God is. Jesus perfectly reveals this as he comes into the world, as he gets to work. One of the first things he does is looks for some people to work with him. One of the first things he does, before he turns water into wine, he goes and finds some helpers. He goes and finds people to work with. The story I read a little bit earlier stands out to me as Jesus needing some help. Jesus has had a bad day. Um, he just heard that his cousin, uh, John the Baptist, was killed. And he's struggling. And uh, you see it, he gets in a boat, tries to go to the other side of the shore. The crowds have followed him. And when he sees the crowds, he can't help himself. It says the scripture, he had compassion on them. It's that same word, esplachnia, means his guts turned over inside of him. And he loved them. So he spent all day with these people. Uh, he was healing them, spending time with them. Gets to the end of the day, the disciples said, all right, Jesus, it's time to pack it up and go home. These people are hungry. Send them away. And then Jesus says to them, you give them something to eat. Pfft. Can you imagine? Jesus is the one that's been healing blind people. Jesus has been the one that has been raising up children from the dead. And then he says to his disciples, you do it. No, 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 no. Jesus, you got it all wrong. You're the miracle maker. You're the one that does all the work. And Jesus says, no, no, I need you. What have you got? While the disciples are busy with this, uh, like trying to figure out what does Jesus want to do here, Jesus, you're the guy with all the power. You're the one with all the decisions. You're the one that can do anything. Why are you asking us for anything? There's a little boy nearby. Maybe he overheard the discussion. Maybe he figured out, oh, Jesus needs me. What a strange idea that this little boy might think, you know what, Jesus needs me. When the disciples can't get their mind wrapped around that, what do you need us for? You do the miracle. But this boy says, oh, Jesus needs me. He needs what I have. So he goes to the disciples, goes to Jesus, and says, hey, um, 
I understand that you're putting together a potluck and <laughs> we got to feed some people. I don't know how many people this will feed, but, you know, if you need it, you can have it. Brings his five biscuits and two pieces of fish. Says, how many will this feed, Jesus? And Jesus says, this will do. We can work with this. So Jesus takes the boy's fish, prays over them, does a very similar prayer to what he does at the Last Supper. And then he gives it to his disciples to deliver to the 5,000 people. This strikes me as really interesting. How would Jesus feed 5,000 people by himself? Maybe we could imagine some miraculous system that maybe Jesus like, you know, whistled to a bunch of owls and they all hand-delivered food (laughs) to 5,000 people. But in this moment, it's very clear that Jesus needs the disciples to distribute the food, to get to work. And the people are fed. I think a lot of times we get wrapped up in the beauty of Jesus doing this miracle, Jesus having the compassion. But what stands out to me here is that Jesus could not have done this by himself. Jesus needed his disciples. Jesus needed this boy. Jesus reveals that God never works alone, that God needs us for miracles to happen. When we think about these things, um, you might be thinking, you know, Rick, I hear you, I hear you, but Jesus is something different than me. Jesus is God. So uh, Jesus can do things that I can't do. Well, I want to push back against that a little bit. I've always, uh, I, I say this all the time, that Jesus reveals who God is. I truly believe that. But that's not all that Jesus does. Jesus also shows us, Jesus also is perfectly human. Jesus is also perfectly human. I use those words carefully. He shows us what it truly is to be human. Jesus not only shows who God is, but shows us who we are and who we can be. The miracles Jesus does, he doesn't do because he's God. He does it because he's a human who works with God. Small difference, but it's crucial. Everything Jesus does, he does because God calls him to do it. In these moments, Jesus is the hands and feet that God uses to make things right in this world. Jesus responds perfectly to what God is doing. And because Jesus responds perfectly, Miracles can happen. But he's not just showing what God can do. He's showing us what humanity can do. He's showing us what flesh and blood can do when we become the hands and feet of God. St. Teresa of Avila has this poem that is famous that people love because I think it grabs our attention. Jesus said that God is spirit. God has no body. St. Teresa of Avila, she uh, gives this to Christ also, the risen Christ who has no body here on earth 
now. And she writes this poem. She says, Christ has no body now but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks compassion on the world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which he blesses the world. Yours are the hands. Yours are the feet. Yours are the eyes. You are his body. Jesus on earth in the flesh demonstrates what it is to be God's hands and feet in this world but he demonstrates who we are called to be, that God is calling us to be his hands and feet in this world. God is sending us to make things right in this world. That's the last thing I kind of want to say about love is that love always sends. It's always moving. It's always doing something good. It's always, God is always sending us into the world to make things right to proclaim the good news about God. How is God sending you into this world? How is God calling you to make things right? How is God calling you to make, um, uh, to make things happen for the kingdom of God? I'll share a little bit of my calling. My calling. I was 14 years old, and, and I was in, God sends us in a lot of different ways, but I was I was 14 years old. I was in a small Nazarene church, and that church, they were in a call system where the congregation votes on the pastor. Um, but what then happens is often when the pastor is trying to, to move to another place, there's all the secrecy and all the stuff. And, and so usually a pastor will announce that they're leaving and then leave. <laughs> and then the church is usually without a pastor for 18 months while they try to figure out what they do and how they go about getting a new pastor. So Methodists, the grass is not necessarily greener on the other side of the road, just to let you know. And I was in a church like this, and uh, the church was shrinking. We were losing people. We were losing really close friends, and I was sad, and I was 14 years old, and we were in church on a Sunday morning, and we were praying, and I remember as the pastor was praying, I was praying my own prayer, and I was praying, God, send us a pastor. Why is this so hard? Send us a pastor. Send us a pastor. In that prayer, I heard God speak back to me. He said, well, whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Which is kind of a famous uh, word from the Bible. It's the words that God spoke to Isaiah in chapter 6. And if you know the story, then you know the response. And so I said to God in that prayer, Here I am, Lord, send me. And I felt in this moment that God was calling me to be a pastor, that God was calling me to preach the good news, that God was calling me to lead congregations and be entrusted with the traditions of the church and to do all this stuff now um, that I'm doing. And uh, I think, well, this last week, the Board of Ordained Ministries said, yeah, we agree, God is sending you. But a lot of times we idealize that kind of calling when God is calling us into the world, God is calling us to work for the kingdom, it's, it's got to be for ministry, or what is God calling me to do in the church? What is, how is God calling me to volunteer in the church or in the denomination, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? I don't think God is just sending people to work in churches. I don't think God is just sending you to volunteer more at the church. I think that God is sending you right now 
into your communities, into your neighborhoods, into your families, into your jobs, into your vocations, because God needs you there to do the work that brings about the kingdom of God. Think about wherever you find yourself, imagine that God has sent you to that moment. And when you are in that moment, whether you are in English class, whether you are at work at your desk, whether you are at coffee with friends, know that God has sent you into that moment. And have your antennas up. Have your ears open. What does God need me to do right here? Why has God sent me here? What can I do right now for the kingdom of God? Be listening because you could be part of somebody's miracle. Be listening because God never works alone. Be listening because God needs you. He needs your bread. He needs your fish. He needs you to deliver. He needs you to care for the people right then and there. God is sending us in all sorts of different directions. If you are working, if you, uh, if you have a job, then I think how God is sending you is clear. I think God is sending you to do that good work. If you cannot imagine your job as a way of blessing people or bringing in the kingdom, then get a new job. If you can't imagine your job as partnering with God and making this world better, get a new job. Get a new job. I mean that. I've said that before, and I've never had a congregation member come up and say, hey, I quit my job this week. So... <laughs> I think God can work through your job. See how God is asking you to work through your job. If you are retired, then I feel sorry for you. Just joking, right? <laughs> but you do have the freedom to figure out how is God calling you to work for the kingdom. You have the freedom. You don't have a boss. You don't have an employer. You don't have the same kind of ties. But what is God blessing you with where has God sent you and how will you work there? God needs you. The important thing when I say God needs you, it means that your work actually matters. Your work actually matters. Earth, this creation, it is not a testing ground for souls. It is not some crazy cosmic experience or experiment where God gives us life just to see if we're going to have faith in him or not, and then whisks us away to heaven. It's not that. God created all of creation because God loves creation. God loves this. Creation has always been the goal. And our goal now, now that creation has gone a little wayward, gone a little sideways, our goal is the same goal that we pray every week. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray for God's kingdom, for God's righteous reign to be here on earth, for all things to be made right. God needs you, and your work matters. It matters. So do it to the best of your ability. Do it with prayer and reverence. In everything you do, do it for the glory of God. I'd like to end the sermon with a couple of takeaways. Uh, what do we do with this? I think uh, the first one is, uh, let's see, prayer acknowledges that no one does the work alone. 
you can ask for prayer. You can ask God for, to do things. I think we should ask God for, to do things. I think that we should go to Jesus and say, hey, all these people need to eat. What are we going to do? But prayer also acknowledges that God doesn't do it alone, that God needs you. So if you pray, God, please heal this person. God, please bring them comfort. Be prepared for God to ask you or to tell you, we'll go and comfort them. We'll go and heal them. If you pray, God, send us someone, be prepared for God to say, well, then go. Do it. Prayer is an acknowledgement that God is alive and at work in our world, but also that God doesn't work alone and that God will ask things of us. So our prayers kind of, um, our prayers demand our action as well. So that's the first thing. Uh, The second thing is to uh, see how God is sending you into this world. What are you called to do? It doesn't have to be a grand departure from your weekly schedule, from the things that you are already doing. In fact, God is probably already sending you to do these things, whether you are aware of them or not. So be aware. How is God sending you into what you are actually doing? And then the last one is this Thursday night. We're going to have Dr. Tom Ord, uh, author of this book, person who's kind of organized some of these thoughts, kind of helped me think through some of these things. Uh, He's going to be open for some questions and answers. And I just want to let you know that we can disagree on these things. We don't have to fully agree on the way we think about God. We can have this conversation in the church, in the United Methodist Church, why I love it. Um, I've fought with uh, with Tom on all this for a long time, and we've kind of stayed close. Last February, um, while we were still living in the hospital, Tom called me and said, hey, I'm going to be in Portland. You want to go get a cup of coffee or lunch sometime? And I said, yeah, do you have any idea what's been going on in my life? And he said, no, because he wasn't on social media. And I said, well, we've just, in, we've just uh, experienced an incredible, miraculous healing in my daughter's life. And uh, so I need to know, how does your God who can't do anything fix this, <laughs> create this miracle? I challenged him a little bit, and he was like, oh, read chapter three of my latest book, and then we'll talk. And... Um, <laughs> So, so I did, and, uh, and, and so just to let you know, I wrestle with these things as well, but I do think for those that struggle with evil and suffering and figuring out how does God work into all this, a lot of these ideas can be a breath of fresh air for people who are afraid that God hates them or God somehow orchestrated their suffering, so... Uh, Join us on Thursday evening for that discussion. We disagree. We can these different things. But I think what we see in Jesus Christ is a God who is fully love, a God who continues to participate with us in absolutely everything, asks us to get involved, tells us that we matter, a God who shows us the extent of, to which he will go for love, that he will go to death for us, and a God who shows us that not even death can overcome his love.